Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 28th episode of the Truth Island podcast. When thinking about one's friends and immediate social circle, a number of different variables may come to mind. Race, culture, religion, ethnicity, country of origin, and even language can be the social glue that keeps people together. However, what if the people in your immediate social circle have more to do with what's in your bank account than all of the above? When you think of the people that you went to school with, for example, have you ever pondered what exactly is bringing all of these people here together? Chances are it was the geography or proximity to a local elementary or high school that made your classmates your classmates. According to a paper published by Michael D. Carr and Emily Weimers, professors at the University of Massachusetts, using census data gathered between 1981 and 2008, the probability of leaving one's social class remains at an all-time low. Despite huge advancements in education and the percentage of young people earning college degrees, the chances of a middle-class kid working his or her way up to the top 20% of earners has fallen by at least 20%. While the paper points to a myriad of different factors, such as the decline in high-paying union jobs and the transformation of the United States into a service-based economy instead of manufacturing, income inequality and the middle class has hollowed out. It is becoming apparent that those stuck in the middle are being left with nowhere to turn but down. Joining me to help sort this issue is Lauren, a social worker who has worked with some of our neediest communities. Lauren. Hi, <laughs> good to be here, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. So yeah, um, I definitely have seen that happen in terms of the middle class and people in the middle being stuck there. And I've also seen compounding fa factors related to people's ability to speak English well, also race, how race plays into people's upward mobility. And um, that comes from my experience within the social work profession and just in generally, in general, also being a part of the middle class. And so um, sometimes I think I do feel that the intersection of race or immigrant status or whatever have you could, that there is a possibility that that uh, inhibits someone even more so than their standing class at the time. Obviously not being a citizen is a huge barrier to gaining middle-class uh, prosperity. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on some of the other issues that you just mentioned? Yeah, for sure. So yes, very true what you're saying about that. And I can elaborate a little bit on that, how I've seen some risk factors related to people who even might have some sort of card to be here to work where their status is pending based off of a significant other, you know, in marriage, and then sometimes how different dynamics can keep them in a situation that might not, you know, help them along, um, mostly with domestic violence, like some, that's where I've seen it. But so with race in general, what I'm saying is, so there have been studies done, for instance, where you have people with the, you know, them sending out to employers parallel resumes where people have the exact same experience on, um, on the resumes themselves. So the exact same skills, exact same length of employments, you know, educational background, all of that. And then sending them out and seeing, and what they're altering is just the names that are on them. And then quote black 
you know, sounding names versus like a white sounding name, however, you know, they define that. But, and I, I actually do know people personally whose parents named them quote, not white sounding names because of this awareness about how that might affect them economically in the future or like their job outlook in the future. And so in, in these studies, what they found was that the white sounding name resumes and applications got a much higher rate of return in terms of getting an interview um, and then moving on further with that than the black sounding names. And so that also you can apply that to applying for loans, you know, whether it's a business loan or whether it's a home loan, you have the same dynamics going on there. So whether it's a conscientious thing that the employer is doing, you know, we know it can be a subconscious thing too. Um, there is though that implicit bias, there is that bias that is affecting just one's ability to get a job in the first place. Now I'm familiar with that study and in the study, correct me if I'm wrong, everything like the school, the educational credentials, the address were identical. It was just the name that was the only difference maker, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, exactly. I was also wondering, because I have also uh, spoken to a number of people and there seems to also be this idea of your college, for example, determining what jobs that you're available to get. And I've seen a lot of education discrimination based on whether you went to example, a public college or an elite private college. And I'm wondering if, if, if this is also like, like, you know, I'm wondering in my head if, you know, a bachelor's degree from one place is always the same as a bachelor's degree from another place or a master's from one school and for another school. And I'm wondering if that also plays into upward mobility. Do you think that has also a component to do with it? Well, you said that's research that you have seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know that particular research, but I think in many ways it makes sense in the sense that, you know, a lot of those like elite private schools where obviously only certain people can afford it and get in a lot of times there's that, you know, what do they call them? Like a legacy applicant where you had a parent who went in or who, a parent who was a donor. And so you're more likely to be able to get in in that respect. And then there's that, again, I think it's that elite exclusion of we want people who are familiar with, what is it? What do they call it? Um, I don't know if it's, it's not social capital. Maybe it's. You're referring capital. to legacy, right? Legacy. Well, I said that. Yeah. But, and I guess I diverted from that a little bit in saying that. People you're, who can um, write huge checks for the school, like some form of philanthropy, I guess. Yeah, for, for sure. In terms of getting in. Um, and then you're a part of a, you're part of a similar social circle. It's, I think it's even what you mentioned at the very beginning in your intro of then people grouping themselves together based off of their already their already social class standing. So then you have that cycle of we went to the same school or we prefer to work with people who come from the same social and class background. Um, and then like that, that leading to the, those hiring practices. That's where I go in my mind. Like I'm not totally familiar with the research, but that's what I would think is like how that logic sort of plays out. You know, it's interesting that, you know, that you meant that you talk about this. I'm wondering if they did that study again, if they, let's say, had a, like a white applicant that was from a less selective school, and then they had a, a person of color from the more elite college, how that would play out. I'm wondering if 
race would still triumph as being the deciding factor? Or do you mm -hmm. think it's perhaps possible that the school uh, would be so prestigious that that would triumph as being the, uh, the highlighting factor? So I don't think you can separate them, you know, um, in the sense that it's like, you know, the word in all of the, these groupings is intersectionality. And so, you know, I don't think you can separate class from race and how they impact one another, because a lot of it is, you know, in class, even what you're saying, there's like, there is this cycle. So you have a family, you have groupings of people who all live around each other, go to the same school systems together, then getting to the similar schools, if they are going on to higher education, getting to the same schools. And then if what you're talking about happens, then that's also happening where you have a group of people maybe going to public schools and then a group of people going to these elite private schools. And so then the outcome is you have kind of these tribes of people moving on together, to almost like cohorts, you know? Um, so in, in my opinion, you can't really like separate the two very neatly. And, you know, there's a lot of debate around like affirmative action related to race but it is pretty apparent that you know and some would say affirmative action is already happening mm. because of those cycles so you have you know white students or student, students who are already of a higher social class who continue to get in because of the legacies because of the donations because of their ability to afford it and so then you need something to counterbalance that which would be you know uh, increasing intentionally increasing the rate of people from different racial or ethnic backgrounds or social standing to get in. I hear what you're saying. Would you agree with me that the people that are in this cohort of getting into these very uh, selective and private schools, they are probably in like the top 5% or 1% of society. Would that be a fair characterization in your opinion? I mean, I, in terms of the percentage, I don't, I, I think there's probably data that bears that out or not. So I wouldn't be able to speak to, you know, the specifics of that. Assuming, let's just say that the data suggests that those people that are going to elite colleges are in the, and I think you did mention this earlier, they're definitely in like the top tier social economic status, right? Sure, like you're, exactly. we're in a, okay. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, for example, that number just as a percentage, like the top 5%, okay. And mm -hmm. let's just say for argument's sake that that small top 5% is white or predominantly white. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, if we look at the bottom 95%, if you would, mm -hmm. if they are also having that same struggle, if you would, of getting into top tier colleges and also getting into top tier positions thereof. And it could be that they are a part of the white race or some other other race that is considered to be in the in-group, but because they don't have the social capital, because they don't have the connections, because they don't have the legacy, because they don't have a rich parent that can write a huge check, I'm wondering if they too are kind of being left out of this system as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's interesting too, because with social capital, and I'm pretty sure the word is cultural capital, comes along with it. So your ability even, it's like, talk about sports like tennis or golf are sports that generally require a good amount of like you need to have capital financial capital to be able to play right they're just they're inherently expensive sports and all of that um so even your ability to like like they've talked about this too related to gender in like the workplace and um you know you're at an interview and the person interviewing you is 
from uh, has that cultural capital of, oh, I grew up playing golf and, you know, I play at this golf course and we travel to Hilton Head, you know, every year to do this. And then you're that relational ability to connect with someone over this thing that a certain echelon of people regularly participate in, not that other people can't, but it's more common to a certain group of people, then that's also a gap. It's like being able to use a certain jargon, you know, um, and obviously I'm using sports in terms of that simplified thing, but that applies to, you know, certain events, whether it's a, um, a fundraiser that you had tickets to go to, or, you know, I remember growing up in middle school, everybody did these, debutante like you know coming of age things and that's a very well-known kind of like southern wealthy white thing to do and so those are the types of things where and then that leads into your social capital and who you're spending time with so they're all really like linked together you know is it possible to say that you know um for example at my high school we certainly didn't have any uh debutante ball or anything like that. I grew up in Queens. So I'm wondering, uh, even though I, I am of the white race, I'm wondering like, because I went to like a lower middle class high school, that I also in that respect lack that social capital since I never had a, a debutante. I never had like a football team in my high school. I went to a very overcrowded high school. So I'm wondering if uh, that exclusion from social capital could affect people of all different backgrounds. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's not to say there aren't, you know, white people who don't have access to certain things at all. Absolutely. Um, a lot of times it's just different types of access or different obstacle, you know, sometimes you can swap out different obstacles, one for another one, or you could say one, you know, obstacle can feel more, you know, more weighty. I mean, um, but yeah, for sure. I think that um, even how people communicate at home, you know, there's this idea of like right and wrong ways to speak. And so even I think, I, you know, I speak to a lot of my experience living in the South, you know, even white people or black people or whoever um, speaking like a, with a very heavy Southern accent, for instance, or sometimes people construe that as just we'll go ahead and make the judgment that that person is uneducated or ignorant or whatever you know um and that can affect any people so you know, it's funny um, you mentioned yeah. that they say that um when people are looking to relate to somebody the way that someone sounds and the language they speak actually can mm -hmm. be like one of the number one indicators of of that so i would say i would even argue that somebody with a working command of English, regardless of where they're from, might have an advantage in an interview over someone who speaks with a thick accent of any type. Totally. I want to think about uh, this. You had mentioned earlier the idea of affirmative action. I'm wondering if you would be in favor of perhaps a class-based affirmative action. So for example, we've all, you've, when you went to college, did you remember filling out the FAFSA form? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah, we, we all fill out the FAFSA form and I've always thought in my head, well, geez, you know, and, and let's not take away what you said, because I think you make a good point when you brought up the resume study and that um, racial identity and, and biases are, are still pre prevalent. But I'm wondering if there should perhaps also be a class version of affirmative action, because I think uh, when your parents fill out 
your income tax or when they fill out the FAFSA form, if they could see that you went to a school that wasn't the best funded, perhaps maybe just looking at how much money your parents made or the conditions in which you were educated, should that also perhaps play a role in the types of colleges that you get into? Um, yeah, so I mean, in my mind, scholarships and grants do that, uh, you know, in the sense of, yeah, like, I mean, that's what they're addressing, they're uh, need based. And then I think the issue, and so I guess, maybe just to clarify, do you mean in terms of like, maybe the quote merit, like they're academically not up to, you know, what the university would say is their standard for entrance, but because the student came from a like less income or um, like you said, poor schools, that there would be affirmative action for that person? Yeah, so basically when you have uh, affirmative action working, it doesn't guarantee you an automatic slot into the school, obviously. You still mm -hmm. have to have good grades, you still have to have right. high levels of academic performance, but it is a, a weight that's added to your application. So I'm wondering if, in your opinion, it would be acceptable to have that same weight added for your income, because it, it seems mm -hmm. like affirmative action is a weight based on uh, your race, but it's not necessarily a weight that's attached to your application if you, let's say, came from a single parent household or if your parents only made $35,000 a year. I'm wondering if, if some weight should also be put to that application as well. Yeah. How does that sound to you? I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, I think it's addressed in ways, in like smaller ways, you know, without calling it affirmative action. Like there's essays and scholarships for like, I overcame a certain obstacle or, um, you know, whatever, or like those means-based um, tested, you know, thing or, you know, income tested uh, need-based is what they call them. So yeah, but I, I do see that. I think that if we want to elevate um, American society to allow for more upward upward mobility for all people, then yes, I think there should be much more attention paid to um, people's type of class background they're coming from. And, and that's just, yeah, I, I think there's just a, in many ways, the people who are in power, there is somewhat of a, I think in a lot of places in ignorance, if it's not a intentional keeping out of the have nots, it's a completely, I think this is why people say, you know, people in power should, there should be a requirement for many people to have lived through, you know, what a lower class group of people have had to live through because then the policies that are put into place would be more sympathetic to what people have to go through to get to where they, where they need to go. It would be kind of nice, actually, to have leaders that went to public schools, yes. and it'd be nice to have a leader that rode the subways everywhere and, and totally. sort of, you know, walked in working class boots for a little, a little, at least somewhat of their life, you know, somewhat of their life, so that when they get to power, they can kind of fondly look back and be like, yes, I remember when I used to live there, or yes, I remember having to ride the subway, or I remember going to that overcrowded school and so forth. The reason I ask this of you, Lauren, is that a lot of people oppose affirmative action and things like that because they say, well, 
what about the other poor people? Or they'll say things like, shouldn't everybody who goes to a, um, a, a dysfunctional school also have a, a better chance of, of getting it up into the Ivy League? So for example, there's a, uh, a group of whites who live in like rural Appalachia and some of these schools, they don't have smart boards, they don't have, uh, they just have basic blackboards, outdated textbooks, lack total lack of resources. So I think that that kind of creates some divisions in our society because you have clusters of people that are living in poverty. And in my opinion, I think we should kind of take care of everybody who hasn't really had, you know, a meal at the table, so to speak. And I think that mm -hmm. the more like inclusive our languages and the more inclusive these programs are, the more of a um, support and a more of a, an appeal that they will have. How does that sound to you, Lauren? So I think that, yes, we should be as inclusive as possible. And so I think that if you want to turn to something as simple as statistics to like bear that out to show, you know, um, then I think, again, you can't you can't remove race from the picture because people of different racial groups are being excluded at high, much higher rates than other groups of people. And so if you're going to make it an equal playing field for all people, then you do need to more aggressively address where there are, there is more disproportionate wealth, where there is more disproportionate um, inclusion. And so that would mean you need to more aggressively address the racial discrimination, the gender discrimination, because that's, and even if you don't want to call it discrimination, you can call it, you know, just being behind because of historical oppression, whatever it is. I think if you want to bring everyone up to the same starting place, then there are some groups of people that you are going to have to, you will have to make a priority while not forgetting about everyone else. I, I think that, yeah, like let's, create, I think there is a way to make sure no one is forgotten about while at the same time advocating for vulnerable or, um, you know, discriminated against or, you know, whatever populations to um, have a seat at the table that they're just not getting, you know, it's like, um, and I think you can just, you can see that from in relation to the population and who's represented in the population to who's actually at the table, whether it's higher education or in, you know, getting employed. It's interesting that you mentioned like who's being represented because if I, if you look up like at some governing body such as the Senate, one of the things that I notice is that the people that are elected into the Senate are extremely wealthy. They tend to mm -hmm. have like a lot of money. So that's kind of why I sort of scratch my chin a little bit and say, okay, like we definitely need to take care of um, historical uh, discrimination and inequities wherever we can find them in our society. But it seems like the the defining characteristic for me at least is not necessarily your group identity but more or less your class identity because when we think about the elites ruling the world in terms of like harvard or yale or even the, your probability of being elected to the senate it has a lot to do with what's in your bank account so i think that greater initiatives in getting 
your working class subway rider, regardless of what background they're coming from, are really going to help society like diversify the social economic status of, of our governing bodies. I think that would really help society the most. Yeah, I mean, my pushback to that is to say, well, how many black people are in the Senate? And I would say how many poor people are in the Senate? You know, no, 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 but literally how many black people are in the Senate. So you have, because even at a well, even with all the wealth, right, even with all the wealth, you could, I mean, and there are way less rich people in black and Hispanic communities than white communities at a disproportionate rate to the general population, you know, um, I mean, so it's like, Again, yeah, like absolutely have more poor people, <laughs> you know, and absolutely. It's like, so I just read this really interesting study actually recently, and um, I was looking up infant mortality rates. So because, and I was looking it somehow I came across it because of how COVID was affecting people and like fatality rates of uh, rates of COVID. And um, so COVID has been killing black and brown people at crazy rates related to the general population. And there are many different compounding factors because of that. But it's like, even when you control for poverty rate, black people and brown people are still dying at ridiculous rates. Um, and the same thing was in that infant mortality study. They controlled for income and they controlled for so many other factors. And then you had black mothers dying at higher rates and you had black babies dying at higher rates and what a lot of that what they were attributing it to with you know some of these correlations were discriminatory practices within hospitals um lack of access and resources to like prenatal care proximity to i mean so many things that again like there is absolutely poverty is uh poverty and less and the social class and all, you know, social capital and all of those things do are like at a foundational level affect all people. And then on top of that, there are these, these, these intersectional things of race that will then add like this exponent to how poverty is affecting them or their, up, their ability to move upwardly. I think I know of the study that you're referring to. And I think that the reason uh, for that disproportionate number of uh, people of color contracting COVID is because they work in the service industry, right? Like they're the cashiers, they're the uh, the drivers of Ubers, they're the they're the ones basically facing the general public. Does that does that sound right to you, Lauren? As as being a reason as to why that might be? Yeah, I mean they talked about also just general health outcomes too. So we know that like the more susceptible you are to just illness in general, uh, you know, obviously with COVID that makes you more vulnerable to fatality with it. And so there are the things, you know, like why is somebody's body less healthy than another body? And that is a lot of times like proximity to healthy foods um, in your neighborhoods. And, and then again to, and usually those same communities, this all goes back to like, well, I won't, I don't need to kind of put that all together, but there are many factors related to COVID, why more black and brown people. And also you mentioned the subway, like more people of color also use public transportation um, and live in more densely populated areas. Um, and so, you know, your just even ability to be more spread apart. But, and so this is where 
in my, this is where a little more like my thought is and how these things, um, well, anyways, I'll just jump to it, but it's, this is where, you know, people's opinions might differ. And that's that the idea that if more wealthy is one thing, people were being affected because we know more poor people were being affected, right? And then if more white people were being affected in terms of fatality, that there might have been a more aggressive, um, you know, approach to dealing with COVID and fatality. That's a theory, you know, that's a theory, but it kind of, it, but in my opinion, it bears out from the other evidence that we have of discrimination. And, um, and so those, again, are some of those, like, you know, um, these intersections of different places of power and policy and the practicality of, you know, where you live and who you're grouped with and your access, you know, to all of those things. Suppose you had in, in, in New York City, like where we both live, if there was, let's say, a white person that was working a service sector job, they were low income, they were living in a highly dense apartment or in a highly dense area of the city, and let's just throw in that they were also obese or had other kind of um, risk factors that would make them susceptible to COVID, and they were also going to the same hospital as brown and, 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 and black people, would you say that they are also like, would you say that they also kind of suffer from the same risk factors in, in terms of contracting the disease and perhaps not being treated for it poorly if they have all of the check marks, they just happen to be a white person? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the research bears out though, that once you get to the hospital, you're treated differently. So, you know, I'm new to New York and I'm not totally familiar with all the systems here, but that's um, in general, we know that there are, that uh, black patients are taken care of with less time. So doctors spend less time with them, um, you know, are often dismissed for much more quickly, you know, and those are, so that in and of itself, like someone deciding whether or not they're going to spend more time with you to even figure out what's going on is um, just even a small factor in and of itself. So where you go to the hospital, even if all of those things are controlled for just arriving there with a different color skin does affect, you know, does affect your, your treatment, which is going to affect, you know, your survival rate and your, how you're treated. So you're saying that I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point um, that you might have a doctor or a nurse who's attending to you for longer durations of time. Um, is it, you know, it's interesting. I've gone to the hospital and the doctor's always trying to get rid of me as quickly as humanly possible. So I'm wondering, like, if it's a question of do you think that perhaps because these hospitals are so poorly funded and because they're so under, you know, underly staffed, that if, if you look at the statistics, because those hospitals are specifically serving a certain type of patient and the hospital also happens to be underfunded, that might on the overall lead to less patient interaction. Whereas if, let's just say that um, the, uh, the whites are attending a more affluent hospital, perhaps that hospital has more resources and the doctor is able to spend more time on them. So I'm wondering if that's like an issue where it's not necessarily that the doctor that's working at the hospital is necessarily a racist person or believes that a black life is uh, of less value and of less time. It could just be that those hospitals have 
um, a very, 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 you know, they're very short staffed and they're unable to spend as much time as an affluent hospital could on a patient. Mm -hmm. Do you think that perhaps some of that has, uh, could be an answer? Well, I think it's both and because we do know that doctors, whether or not, again, it's not a, necessarily about even awareness. There's that implicit bias that just comes generationally and through all kinds of media that a black or, you know, immigrant life is less important, you know, than a white life. So again, I'm not saying that those are things that happen intentionally. It's not necessarily a belief, uh, you know, a conscious belief that this doctor might have, but we do know, like, even in a you know, a busy hospital, if the doctor's spending only 60 seconds with a, you know, a white client or patient, then that's being reduced to, even if it's just 50 or 40 seconds, you know, compound that however much you want. But let's just say that's not happening even, okay? And that it is a matter of, well, this hospital is in this location and so it serves more black and brown people. And this, you know, hospital is in this location so it just happens to serve more white people. Well, if we're talking about interrupting those cycles, if we're talking about, you know, interrupting the wealth gap or interrupting these major like health gaps, then wouldn't you have to intervene in a way that prevents mostly black and brown people from going to, over, to understaffed, underfunded hospitals? Well, I think you could intervene on the class level. So for example, if you know that these hospitals are being underserved and there's less qualified doctors and less staff and you see that, okay, the majority of the people attending this hospital are on Medicaid, then that would kind of be my point of attack. I would say, ah, there's an underfunded hospital. It, I wouldn't really necessarily look at what races or what ethnicities are attending that hospital. I would just see a high concentration of impoverished people attending this hospital and receiving inadequate medical care. And then I would just ramp up that funding, ramp, ramp up uh, the training, ramp up uh, the budgets and just keep funding these places so they could adequately deal with that, with that issue at hand, regardless of the population that, that is necessarily being served. Because it would be my belief that regardless of whether you're on Medicaid or you have a private insurance, you deserve high quality um, uh, medical care. And that would be as from a policy analyst, that would be my main point of attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that I, I would, I would agree with that um, and do agree with that, except for that we know these biases affect policy. So like which, hospitals are going to get priority for that money because money is, there's always a budget, right? Like there's always a budget. There's always limited funds to allocate to different places. So then when someone's saying, well, we have a poor hospital over here we have a poor hospital over here. Um, and one happened there happened because we know people geographically, like you were saying, also live in the same area. So you have more, a lot of times poor white people live with poor white people, right? And then poor black people live with poor black people, Hispanic people, it's the same thing because of culture, because of language, all of those things. Then policymakers, whether again, they're conscious of it or not, determining who is quote worthy of those funds, even saying like, well, the funds are gonna go further here or the funds are gonna go further there. I mean, it's again, like goes back to this resume thing. You know, I think that where that, that bias comes in, that's what the affirmative action is to counter against. And so we could talk about that, like counter, 
the affirmative action for how a, you know, a hospital is funded, it would be like, let's try to um, deal with a segment of society that is more poor than another segment of society um, that appears and the only variable appears to be race. Let's go with your presupposition that the policymaker is in fact has a bias, right? And they would mm -hmm. rather the funds go to the low income white neighborhood, uh, white hospital as opposed to the low income uh, colored neighborhood. Let's just assume that that presupposition was correct. I'm wondering if you would support a law that would say that the most amount of money needs to just be determined on the socioeconomic status of the patients visiting that hospital. So if there was a law that let's say it was passed that said, okay, if this indeed happens to be the poorest hospital and we only look at the social economic status, wouldn't that prevent that policymakers biasness from coming out? Because if they, if their hands were tied and they had to file the letter of the law and the letter of the law says that the money has to go to the poorest areas, then it doesn't matter whether the poorest area is a white area or a black and brown area, those areas are going to get serviced just by virtue of having language that doesn't um, outline a race or doesn't outline an ethnicity. It simply outlines money should go to the poorest hospital. So would you be in favor of that kind of legislation? Um, okay, so I think it would, it would be determined by the goal. And so in the sense of, again, if we're trying to elevate all people to the same um, to the same kind of playing fields. You know, we want as many black people and white people and Hispanic people and Chinese people and, you know, all kinds of segments of society to be able to say, hey, we're all at the same starting line. Then there are reparations that have to be made for historical discrimination. You do have to more because right now the starting field is, you know, controlling for poverty for like saying everybody is in the same social, you know, economic standing and I wouldn't say social, but let's say everyone's in the same economic standing, all the different racial groups, you know, all the different language speakers, and everybody has, you know, legal status, all of that stuff. If you were to create um, starting blocks, you know, let's say this is a race and the end of the race is success, you know, or uh, owning a home or whatever, those starting blocks are not placed at the same starting place. So um, you have Black people and Hispanic people, you know, have, you have really like, you have Native Americans, pretty much all the way in the back. Then you have uh, African-Americans, black people next, then you have Hispanic people, then you have white people. And I'm not sure about other you know, racial groups. Obviously there's many more. Um, and so the thing is, if you want everyone to come forward, then how do you get the, if you're only addressing everyone's money status, but how are you addressing how far back some groups are? You'll have to take, if you want the rate like the, if you want the rate of equality to come up faster, then you have to more ad aggressively address, you know, what's happening in the back. I think it's like layers of, you know, um, almost like illness. You know, you could call, call like our wealth gap is an illness, right? And then we have other gaps that are also illness. And I think it's like a, it's a, I mean, really it's like a holistic approach. Maybe that's what I would say. It's a holistic approach to equality. It's not saying, you don't continue to advocate for the poor man, regardless of, you know, what their um, status is. It's saying, yes, let's advocate for all poor people and let's try to bring up behind from groups that have been disproportionately 
for generations. I mean, generations and generations, this discrimination, this prejudice, this bias, this systemic, you know, racism have been uh, being pushed back further and further, you know, um, from getting to be at the same place in terms of even just a starting line. Sure. In in my native Queens, for example, we have a, um, a very huge uh, Russian Jewish population, for example, mm-hmm. and they only came to the United States uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and a lot of them were also um, like living in poverty on food stamps and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the reason I ask is I think that those people are also in need, and I, I've actually done the research on this. They also uh, tend to earn less uh, le- less than the rest of, of, of New Yorkers per se. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm kind of focusing on this from the angle of class because not every person uh, that is white is necessarily at the front of the line or, or close to it. There are a lot of people that have been, you know, that perhaps came to the country a lot later. You know, they, they came in the 80s, the 90s, or the early 2000s, and they either are still living in poverty or they are still uh, struggling. So I'm wondering if, if we had a more wider net of just be like, hey, let's take everybody that's standing on the back of the line, regardless of who they are, and started pushing them forward, why that necessarily would, would hurt any one individual group. I, I would say that if we're just no, taking- Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. Yeah, please go ahead, you know. No, um, yeah, and it's, it's not that it would hurt one group more than another. And again, I'm talking about like proportions. So it's saying, you know, let's say, what is it right now? I think uh, black people make up like 19% of, you know, the uh, US population. Is that correct? Do you have any idea? Uh, it used to be about 13 to 14%. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, let's, we can just make up numbers to make it round. Okay. Let's say there's, um, let's say it's just 10% of the population is black. So proportionately, this affects, you know, so many areas. This is affects, you know, COVID fatality rates. This affects, you know, how many people are incarcerated of different racial groups. This affects wealth. So if 10% of the population is um, black, then theoretically, 10% of poor people should be black. I'm not following. Could you explain this? So because we're talking about, um, we're talking about, for instance, you were saying, you know, different immigrant groups are, you know, in different places, like in lower standing or everything. So even on the census, we break down like you're, you can be white or black, Spanish speaking. You know, if you're Russian, you are, you are white passing Russian, right? So your skin color like still affects, you know, whatever. So what I'm saying is if we want to address the entire group of uh, poor people, (laughs) I love how we've just gone ahead and used the word poor, it's just much simpler. Um, And say that we want equally all poor people to have equal um, upward mobility, right? Sure, yeah. And I totally agree with that. So, but what I'm saying is in within poor groups of people, there are still groups of people who are disproportionately being affected by all of these things. So if you want to make it so you just have to, it's like the starting place is so that people would just, you know, 
like um, that eat, I guess it's almost like um, it's not even equally poor because there's different, you know, um, measures of what that even means. What I'm saying is within those groups, within that group of economics, you still have groups of people who are, are disproportionately affected in relation to what their population is, just per state, per city, you know, nationwide. Um, so again, when I was talking about the 10%, you say, you know, if they're, if 10% of the population is black, and then let's say 5% of the population is Hispanic, um, then, which is not true, there's more, you know, we're, so I don't know how many more, but let's just say those are the numbers, then, then if you're trying to make it so that all people are on an equal playing field, you have to make it so that those groups, Black and Hispanic groups, are, um, have the ability to uh, be at the same, they should theoretically be at the same um, economic standing as all groups. And so there shouldn't be, um, and if you're going to do that, then you have to, what I'm saying is more aggressively deal with that disproportion while you're dealing with everything else. It's just about like, a, almost like aggressive treatment of um, what's happening, you know, in our body. So let me ask you this. If you, let's say, had um, two families living in utter complete poverty and they're both uh, single parent households, um, one is like a, a Russian household and one is a Hispanic household. And let's just say that the um, income from that household is identical for both families, it's eighteen thousand, and we could let, let we could even say that there's even a language barrier in both of these households. Like both both of these ha households, the parents don't have a command of the English language. I'm wondering what what would be the difference in the aggressiveness? Because you said there needs to be a highly aggressive push to, mm -hmm. to sort of represent these people. In your opinion, what would be the difference in aggression between the Hispanic household and the Russian household? So where, where, what, what would the Hispanic household be entitled to that the Russian household would not be uh, entitled to, assuming that there's a language barrier yeah. in both households and the same level of poverty? Okay, so let's go back to university, um, like admittance rate. Okay, and let's say like you have... Um, you have, let me see how I can do this with numbers. If you have, let's say, 100 people in a university total, and you know that, and that's going to be representative of all the universities in, you know, the United States. Let's say there's 100 people total who go. Well, using our numbers from before, then you should have, uh, based off we said, 85% of that should be white right? So 85 of those people, because I was saying before, you know, let's say there's 10% black people and 5% Hispanic people, and then say there's the rest is white in the United States. Do you remember me saying that? I was just saying as Yeah, no, I, I just think 85% white is a very high number, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. But I'm saying, I'm saying if it should be, I'm talking about if we made it all equal, 
if we made it all equal to what it you mean that be. it's like indicative of of what the census is or something yes. like that? okay i think that, exactly. that exactly. i think actually uh whites make a much smaller percentage of the u.s population than 85 percent at least at this no point. i know i made that up i was oh, just okay. saying so we could compare numbers to numbers totally. okay gotcha I'm, those are imaginary numbers they're just okay have, yeah 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 no 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 okay. totally imaginary numbers just to help me simplify and so that you know it's it's just about what I'm just trying to show is proportion and ratio of one thing to the other. So what I'm saying is if it was whatever, 85% white in the general population, then in a university, theoretically, if we want it all to be equal, then it should be 85% white in the university too. We haven't talked about class yet, but just in terms of race, right? And then if I said the general population was 10 black, then in the university, it should also be 10 black. Right. Okay. And then if it was 5% Hispanic, which is totally way off, but I used that number already, then it should be 5% also in that university. Does that make sense? Um, okay. I do have some questions on this. So okay. this is, so the, these, these numbers are just based on like, it's, it's, are you suggesting like a quota system where it's like, ah, because the population is this, we need that. Now I'm wondering where do grades and does merit fall into this or does the calibration just matter on like the, like there needs to be a certain, there needs to be 85% of whites and 10% of this where I'm wondering where grades and merit kind of fall into this equation. Yeah. So it would be working up to that. So that's where I'm getting at. I'm saying that theoretically, it's not that that's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm saying theoretically, that's where it should be, right? If we're talking about equality. It's, it's, it's hard to, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to picture this in my head because if, 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 if the number, the numbers are just based on whatever the given population is, that should be, and this, let me ask you this question, right? Let's just say that Asians, for example, represent 5% of the population, right? And mm -hmm. I, you know, no idea if that's true. Let's just throw out that number. Suppose there's like a lot of Asians that are very, very, very high achieving. Does the university system then say, okay, we've already reached our 5% quota here on Asians. Therefore, there has to be like a cutoff. And even though you're a very high achieving student, you're not allowed in this university because we've already like this, this university is already indicative of the population. Therefore, even though you're highly achieving, we can't allow you in right now. No, no, no. So let me complete the story. So then it's, I guess just filling it all out will help. Um, so taken, given what I was saying, if the goal is for everyone to be equal, then this is not, it wouldn't just be affirmative action in the university. You would also have to go to communities you would have to start at a fundamental level with even third, you know, third grade reading levels and making sure that all these groups of people, whether it's their economic status or their racial, racials, like who, how they identify racially, you would have to go back to, you know, um, their, their ability to read to how, which goes to the quality of their education, right? which goes also to the stressors that impact your ability to learn, including like not knowing where your next meal is gonna come from, all of those things. And so 
when I talk about aggressively addressing those inequalities, it's not saying like affirmative action is going to fix it because it makes no sense to send someone to school. They can't read or write an essay, you know, at a, at an intellectual level so they can be up to par with everyone else. So I'm definitely not saying that. Um, but what I mean in terms of treatment and aggressively treating it, it's really getting to the root of the issue so that you can have people who can equally, this is where I mean by like, it's equal opportunity, really. It's like, it's so that people can equally apply, even just starting there, like forget who's going to read their applications, right? And what name is on it. It's saying so that you, you even have groups of people who can start in an even playing field. And that's really like, and that's what I'm talking about, about aggressively allocating funds from whether it's a state, you know, a state policy level or it's a nationwide policy level of saying, whoa, we have like, yeah, like, okay, this is great. We have this competitive number of, you know, Asian applicants who are able, who are up to snuff, you know, to get in and to, and to be, you know, the student we need them to be at this university, whether it's an elite university or, you know, a public school, whatever it is. Um, that is fantastic. Now, we also need for uh, these other applicants to be able to have what it takes to compete at the same level as, as those students. And that's going to take, you know, that's going to take decades. You know, that takes generations. It seems kind of, though, that you're making a little bit of a class argument here, because if you're looking at third grade reading levels, right, and mm -hmm it seems like the logic would follow that those reading levels would be low because those students are attending schools that are not properly preparing them. But I would argue that that's kind of a class-based metric because anyone who's attending one of those schools that is underfunded and the teacher is not preparing them to read would be at that same competitive disadvantage. So from what I'm hearing, it, it seems like you're you're kind of on the side of like, the aggressiveness should be more on the class side of things. Am I getting you right on that? No, because there again is that intersection because poverty is affecting those low income schools, the low education is affecting black and brown communities more. But so, if it is, if, if we do see that that poverty is also affecting other communities as well, then there should also be an aggressive push in those community as well, right? Like that's, yes, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely aggressive in both ways. And again, more aggressive with black and brown communities. So I think you could, I mean, and truthfully, like I think in, in the United States, there's so much wealth here. It's ridiculous. Like you can do that in, you can do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, there are ways to do it all at once, I think. And it's, again, it's like, it's not even, um, it's not saying one group of people is more deserving than another at all. It's just recognizing there's more illness there. You know, it's like, I think, um, you know, I don't know what we would compare it to because all illness is, you know, not good, but it's like, you bring in people, for instance, to um, a hospital, you treat the, I mean, well, that's not a good example because that's more emergency. Um, but there's just, there's long-term treatment plans and then there's like, sh you know, shorter or there's longer term treatment plans, I guess what you say, or more holistic treatment plans. And I guess what I'm saying is whatever you're going to use to address these poverty gaps, you, you cannot discount how race 
plays into those poverty gaps. And so um, addressing poverty or you know low class status or whatever it is, um, you ha you definitely can do that aggressively, but you do have to consider how race impacts these groups of people. You know, um, it's kind of like equal opportunity or employers who will say, I mean, again, it's affirmative action. It's even like disability. We're just talking about race. But there's just how disability affects your ability to get um, jobs and upward mobility, you know, mental health, gender, like those are all compounding factors. I mean, our Supreme Court has how many, you know, has had how many female justices in it. And again, you like look at legislators and there are things that it's, it's just really, I mean, in plain sight, it's um, even when people have, you know, you have, for instance, women who make what it's like 75 cents on the dollar to a male counterpart with again the same skills the same experience and all of these things and i know there's arguments to be made about you know uh care, birthing ch caring children all of those you know those factors but it but those are again compounding factors that that challenges one's ability to move up at the same rate as everyone else. And so if you don't address those things, you're gonna to continue to have people lagging behind even after you've you know, you know, addressed those things. So it, it can be a, in terms of like, I don't care what, you know, that's not true, I do care about the order. I think it can all be done at one time. You know, I think you can address all of those things at once. And again, we've just been talking about race, but I think it's got to be addressed for women. It's got to be addressed for LGBTQ rights. It's got to be addressed for disability, you know. Suppose we had a very aggressive tackling of poverty, right? Of all races, of all genders, highly, highly aggressive. And we, we made sure that all the hospitals, all the schools were 100% up to snuff regardless of the community. And then, and only then, when we saw that there was still some disparity uh, between race and there was still inequality, would you be opposed to then filling in the gaps? Like have the aggressive first, like start off with an aggressive policy that's ending poverty, making sure all of these public schools, all of these hospitals are adequately funded, trying that out for a number of years. And then if we're still seeing that there's disparities that can't really be explained, then kind of stepping in with some other measures. But I think, I think a part of this is if we, we, we need to, as a society first, really tackle poverty first and then see what happens and see where the gaps is or where where all these cracks are happening because i don't think we've necessarily addressed poverty to begin with for us to even know exactly is it the poverty that's causing uh people to not advance or is there a lot of other factors as well no but we do know that it's not just poverty i mean for instance when there was a war on drugs okay in the united states there were different drugs that were considered to be more justifiably to give people um, longer sentences, more severe sentences. And those, and for no, I mean, how, how do you even do that, first of all, right? How do you choose which drug? Also, why even tell people, you know, <laughs> that they can't do drugs? I mean, first of all, we still have, like, marijuana has been legalized in so many places. We still have thousands of people locked up because they were in possession of marijuana. Um, anyways, but what I was saying about the drugs is at the same time you had cocaine and crack 
cocaine uh, being, you know, attacked on this policy level. And crack cocaine is essentially cocaine that's not pure, right? It's just to make it, it's like probably worse for you, but it's also, it's mixed with different things. It's cheaper to get, um, whatever. You had more severe sentences being applied for, um, to the crack than you did the cocaine. And you have, as a result of that, still our, our, prisons are full of black and Hispanic, mostly men. Um, so in terms of poverty and how that affects, you know, even poverty, that means you have families who have had all of a sudden you have single parent, uh, families where you have one person bringing in income, also raising children, um, at the same time. And this has been happening for years. So you have a whole population that's missing, an entire uh, workforce also missing um, their, you know, having people at home to raise children. I mean, that impacts so many different things. So poverty in and it of itself is um, obviously probably the most contributing factor to a person's, you know, quality of life, I would say at a certain, you know, we know after reaching a certain amount of money, you're not, you don't have any better quality of life really, you know, in terms of how happy you are. Um, but obviously you need to have your basic needs met and you should have a little extra fun money in my opinion, you know? Um, <laughs> but those are things too, like, you know, you have, you have places where even, you know, more black and brown people are being picked up simply because there's more police officers in their area. I mean, um, so like right now in our prisons, so you need something to control even for those things is what I'm saying. Um, you need, you need there to be an overhaul in, you need there to be an, uh, uh, aggressively addressing how race plays into all of those different systems is what I'm saying. So maybe if we don't want to use the word, uh, like aggressive, I don't know, I, again, to me, it's like, I like the word holistic approach because it's the justice system, it's housing, it's banking, it's, you know, um, we've talked about healthcare systems. Um, and so again, if we're going to, if we're going to make it so that everyone can make it, so every racial group, so every person of, you know, every, you know, language, whatever can come to the same place, you can't do it without addressing like those policies. You can't do it without addressing all of the generations of wealth that have been missed because more black and brown people have been put in jail. I mean. So there's a few things I want to touch upon. So I think you're referring to the Rockefeller drug laws, which made um, the, the sentence for cocaine less severe than that of crack. But I would argue that that's also a class-based issue because it protects those who have a lot of money and can afford this other drug that allows them to receive uh, a less sentence, right? So I, I would say that like if you were, let's say, extremely poor and white, you might also buy crack because you don't really have it. You can't afford to get cocaine and you could still be susceptible to those same harsh drugs because the law, the Rockefeller drugs law was actually uh, written based on just being in possession of one drug over the other. So I think all poor people kind of suffered from not being able to afford the rich man's drug, cocaine, and having to kind of then opt for, for crack. So again, I, I kind of see this as class sort of playing out once again, where the rich can kind of 
enjoy recreational drugs because they can afford the right one and uh, poor people unable to partake in them because they're unable to afford them. So th that's kind of how I'm seeing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that theoretically makes sense, but who was locked up for it? Could it be that I'm wondering if, if, so you're saying that basically the whites that were in possession of crack were not locked up as much as the other communities that were in possession of that drug? I mean, I know, I know that I can't answer that. I don't know that answer, but I know that there's more, way more black people. And we don't know that there's no statistic that will tell you that black people do more drugs than white people, but look at our jails and it's not, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's just the facts. Like, oh, I mean, how many, like, I mean, we could look up right now statistics on how many, you know, black people and brown people are in jails, but it's the same thing again. Like, you know, you can, you can trace back all these systemic, um, you know, contributing factors, but the fact still remains that black and brown people are locked up at crazy numbers and that affects people who, let's say every single one of those people, let's just say, which we know this is not true, let's say every one of those people, quote, deserved that. Well, it affected, you know, people at home and their communities. It's it's a constant. And again, we know that the third grade reading level, actually you have prisons who project out how many beds they're going to need based off of that one thing. Very so true. Those are, so if you have these things, they, they all compound each other. And so, you know, you have these health outcomes, then you have these uh, justice system outcomes, these prison outcomes. And if all of those things are affecting racial groups of people at once, you have to address that because like we're talking about prison right now and yeah, there's an economic component to it. Uh, but the evidence doesn't bear out that there's a just that it's justifiable to the extent that it's disproportionate in any way, shape or form. Do you think that if we focused on, let's say, the class-related issues, right? Like, because when we think about drugs, we also have to kind of think about the reasons as to why people get into drugs in the first place. Uh, it could be issues of despair. It could be issues of helplessness. It could be that the world you're living in is so despondent that a drug is the only thing that can kind of um, save you or kind of uh, sedate you from from the misery that's kind of following you. So I would say that if, if we were to have better schools, if we had viable economic opportunity uh, for, all, for all groups of people, then it could be that the level of people taking drugs or selling drugs would begin to plummet because they would be satisfied with their lives. They would be satisfied that, hey, this is a good school that I go to. If I play my cards right, I will also go to a good college and there's a place for me um, at the economic pie. So I would say that if we kind of address some of these economic issues that are causing people to get involved in drugs in the first place, uh, then we might, we might just see a huge dip in the prison population for all races and, and for, all, for all people because now they're not turning to the, um, the informal economy, if you would, uh, in order to get by and in order to strive. They have a place in the formal economy and they can be proud of themselves.
I mean, I guess based on that theory, people do drugs for all kinds of reasons, you know, um, that are unrelated to economics. And obviously economics does, of course, impacts that and what you're speaking to, like hopelessness or not, you know, lack of opportunity and all of those things. But I mean, you know, the opioid epidemic was not started because of a feeling of desperation. It was started because of drugs that were being given to people. Well, <laughs> actually, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned the opioid um, epidemic because it actually correlates in, in these communities. It actually correlates with the number of high paying manufacturing jobs being offered. So they found that like in areas where there was once like a very powerful industrial plant and then that plant uh, closed, leaving off uh, tons of unemployed workers, the amount of opioids and other sorts of um, prescription like medication, they actually skyrocketed. And the reason they found that is that when people didn't have anything to do with themselves, when they didn't have a job to go to and they kind of saw their future as very bleak, that just allowed them to to take drugs in, in, in greater quantities and eventually become addicted to it. So mm-hmm. I, I would argue that um, there are examples in our society of where economics kind of fuels drug behavior. And, and there is a relationship. I mean, if you even just think about it, during the Great Depression, you know, you had many men who were drinking every single day because they couldn't find a job. Like the pain of, of, of going home and, and, not, and looking your wife and kids in the eyes was, was, was very, very, very painful. And that, that definitely caused a spike in drinking uh, during that time period. So I, I would argue yeah. that these things do go hand in hand. For sure. I don't dispute that. Um, yeah, I would not dispute that. But what I, I guess going back to a justice system approach, like people ending up, so the opioid epidemic did affect, like you said, unemployed people, right? Yeah. And so, and so did uh, cocaine and, or so did uh, crack usage, you know, crack cocaine usage. But who was locked up? And opio- opioids, um, you know, co- crack cocaine was affecting black and brown communities at a, an amazing and crazy rate. But for some reason now, the opioid epidemic, people are not being locked up at the um, at the same rates and are not being put away. It's what it's been recognized actually as is a public health crisis, right? No, I, absolutely. I, I think, I think you do make an excellent distinction there that uh, one drug is viewed as being like a, a part of criminal mischief. Um, I'm wondering with these drugs, is it that they are illegally, are, are they, because the thing that I'm, I'm just thinking in my head a little bit here, and I actually don't have the answer to this, are these people getting prescriptions for these drugs and then that allows them to avoid criminal prosecution or is there also like an underground economy where they are getting, because from from my understanding, in order to get opioids and and these sort of drugs, you have to have injured yourself and then you get a prescription. So I'm wondering if the prescription is allowing these people to bypass the criminal prosecution or maybe, maybe you are right. Just as you said, maybe it's um, being labeled a public health crisis uh, because of racial connotations. Yeah. I mean, heroin and opioid, uh, you know, addiction are linked to each other, obviously. So you can, you can find, yeah, you can start your addiction because you're prescribed something, but you going and lying about your symptoms uh, is, is illegal and it's illegal for your, for your, uh, your person to um, be giving you a prescription um, that they shouldn't be, but also it's being traded in the streets and that's certainly illegal. I mean, mo- I would say 
now especially that doctors are very are more cognizant there's been so much legal action taken against institutions because of it um yeah i mean people are i'm not i don't know i mean i've thankfully never ended up in addiction in that way um but i can't imagine that that most people are getting their their opioids legally from a pharmacy um i mean even in school i remember people selling adderall you know i mean Hmm. one person getting it and just said selling adderall like it was no big deal i mean you can imagine where there's so much demand for a drug that people are heavily addicted to um you know i think you know to me i think it's pretty it's you know, you had one, like you said, addressed as a criminal issue, and then you have another one addressed as a public health crisis. And so it leads to completely different outcomes. Um, And one outcome is devastating to a community of people for generations. And then another one is, uh, let's actually like take care of you approach. Mm. I mean, which is to like interrupt the cycle versus creating a whole other cycle of issues. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think there is a lot of hypocrisy where as the demographic changes, uh, the way that we view these drugs also changes as as being from a, a criminal prosecution to, oh, let's get you in rehab immediately. I think I think you make an excellent point there. And I think that you are right. Like that is actually like under my model of aggressive economic helping people, for example, that that is like a separate issue that kind of could be linked in that chain of like, okay, well, there is some some unfairness uh, that, that still exists. To kind of like summarize where we've gone, because I've actually learned quite a bit from you. So thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that there, there is, there are, there are pockets of, of like inequality, just as you described with like the drug issue and so forth. I'm wondering if the two can kind of go in tandem. And, and the reason I, I, I say this, um, Lauren, is that a lot of language in politics today can be very polarizing. Like, well, they're getting that and I'm not getting this. And I sometimes feel, Lauren, that if the language in which we spoke in was, was highly inclusive. And I think the word impoverished, I think the word poor, I think the word food stamps actually speaks to many ears. And I think it speaks to many people who are listening. So that's kind of why I'm pushing back a little bit in the sense that like, I think that when we get into these like very like magnified issues of like, okay, well, this group got that and this group didn't, then nobody eats anything, right? Like if we're arguing over, 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 over these things and, and sort of magnifying too much, then we end up with nothing because we're all at each other's throats. So I would say that the more inclusive the language is, um, so if we're saying, for example, that economic outcomes are tied to third grade reading levels, why not just leave it at that and say, hey, we need all of our third graders, every third grader in this world to be getting a top level education. So all of them have that same opportunity uh, to prosper. I'll, I'll give you the final word, Lauren. You know what? I, it, um, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's what people who are advocating for racial equality are saying. You know, it's like, you know, um, and I think what you're saying in language is super important. And, I, and so to me, it comes down to like strategy. strategy. But you have to be really, I think, honest about what the problems are 
so that you can create a strategy, whether it's using certain types of language or whether it's proposing legislation that's more palatable to all people. I'm all for that. Um, I do think it's to get there though, you have to be, I think, radically honest about where, um, where vulnerable populations are being affected more than others, just so you can create these solutions that, that do end up impacting everyone equally so that everyone can end up in the same, you know, uh, opportunity zone as everyone else, you know. Um, so, you know, absolutely, I think it is important to talk about things in a way and to meet people where they're at, you know, you can have, you and I can have a type of conversation that perhaps I have to change to, you know, to level with someone else or have to use different language or whatever it is, you know, um, so that it can remain a dialogue versus an attack, you know, um, like we're, you know, you and I are able to have a conversation that's not personal. We're, you know, thinking about things, we're learning from each other. And I think if we can, there's a uh, saying that I've heard before, it's, you know, be all things to all men. And that in this case, like if I wanna see things move forward for all different groups of people, then yeah, I gotta learn how to speak at someone else, like eye to eye versus, um, you know, speaking on a whole other like level. So I definitely see that. Oh, that was very beautiful, Lauren. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. This concludes the 28th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.